1: Scaffold is supported in part by the Architecture Foundation, bringing new voices to the conversation about architecture in London and around the world. For more information and upcoming events, visit architecturefoundation.org.uk. You're listening to Scaffold, a podcast featuring interviews with architects, artists, and designers. I'm your host, Matthew Blunderfield. In this episode, I speak with the New York and London-based artist Alvera Barrington. Barrington spent his early years in the Caribbean before moving to New York, where he was raised by a community of aunties after his mom passed away when he was 10. As a teenager in Brooklyn, Barrington was steeped in rap and hip-hop culture in a way that shaped his view of the world and of the art that he makes. His work often involves painting on burlap mixed with other mediums like wood and stitched yarn in a way that feels alive and unruly drawing on his experiences in the Caribbean, and through the women he was raised by. The compositions often focus on a single subject, like tropical vegetation and abstracted portraits, and his artist bio explains that recurring motifs such as the hibiscus, the national flower of Jamaica, conjure a romanticized view of the Caribbean that no longer exists except in memory. While Barrington is a formally trained artist, he also has a background in social work, And it became clear through speaking with him how this experience in listening and caregiving has informed an approach to understanding art and history that is fundamentally rooted in compassion. And now, here's the interview. I hope you enjoy it. in london right now i heard what sounded like maybe a, a
0: overground or is that <laughs> That is... <laughs> i'm in shortage and the overground is like uh i'm a couple stories up and the overground is like right by my window okay let me see if this headphone does this work yeah i can hear you oh okay great
1: great thanks for agreeing to do this i really appreciate it so so i first came across your work on instagram which i'm sure. Is the way a lot of people first encounter you as an artist? Um, mm. but maybe before we get into to a discussion about social media and how you operate on platforms like Instagram, I wondered if we could just start at the beginning. <laughs> you were born, born in, your first nineteen eighty three <laughs> yeah you were born in Venezuela, uh, raised in Granada yeah. by your grandmother, but then Moved to Brooklyn, your mother passed away when you were ten, and you were raised in a community of what you call aunties so it's not like you had one specific parent, but you kind of grew up in this generous community of caregivers and I, I wondered if you could tell me more about what that kind of upbringing was like
0: um, well i think so I guess that is a good place to start, but um I think growing up it it after after my mom transitioned out, I think there was a moment of bitterness. You know, it's like you go, I go to each aunt's house and, you know, they all had kids. So they would have a different way of looking at their kid versus looking at me. And I think for a long time that that manifested itself with both like me being grateful, but also being bitter at the same time. And, and then um, I think I, I bumped into uh, this writing by Sartre and he talked about like his dad uh, passing away and how it gave him freedom and um, because it meant that he was no longer living, uh, growing under, under the expectations of his dad and and feeling the need to sort of um, be that way. And then I looked around at all my cousins and, and, and I ended up loving them, but I also realized if my mom was alive, I, I would have definitely been a, a different type of person. And, um, and that it meant that I got to choose myself in a way that I hadn't thought. So that, that became like a moment of like, just, just a push towards what I think is like freedom mm. in terms of choosing myself. But I also started to look back at all and the way to choose myself was sort of look at all these women who raised me and kind of think about what they gave me. And so it meant that I got to choose like, okay, I could take this from Auntie Joan, I could take this from Auntie Zelda, I could take, you know. And uh, and so it became like a moment of like, okay, well, I mean, when you talk about the podcast, one of the, or this interview process, one of the things that I always think about is like, how many people can you talk to let in your life? And, influence your decision because the more people you are exposed to the more ideas you're exposed to the more you can choose like what is the better route so or better way of thinking or more interesting way of thinking and um, because sometimes some some folks have already done the labor of thinking through an idea Mm -hmm. and so when you're in conversation with them you get to jump over, jump over like a lot of work that you would have had to do because they've already done that. And Mm -hmm. then, um, so it became very exciting for me, this idea that I was like inherently uh, conditioned in this kind of moment where, um, in this sort of formative identity of like getting to listen to all these different folks Mm -hmm. and, So I became very grateful for that. And I thought, well, uh, that's one of the biggest truths of my life, let me kind of carry that forward in many different ways. I hope that answered the question.
1: Yeah, I like that idea of one choosing oneself. I think it makes so much sense when we think about art and artists. (coughs) Excuse me. that
0: really- It's a COVID
1: cough. Oh my God, I hope not. And I think I've just, I've had a sore throat for the past couple of days. I think it's something else, but-
0: Yeah, it doesn't sound like a COVID cough. <laughs> I had it. Oh, really? COVID, COVID cough's drier. a lot more drier. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. Um, but so I guess, I mean, it feels like everyone's kind of trying to choose themselves to a certain extent, but artists have much more autonomy in this process of self-discovery and less inhibition, less constraint, and that part of being an artist maybe is um, is this responsibility to set out and find oneself and transform that into an experience that other people can somehow access. And maybe we'll just go right to Instagram because I feel like that's a that's a platform where this process of of self-selection. Is really laid bare, I think. Um, Or at least when I first encountered your work on Instagram, what I saw was someone who is unabashedly searching for oneself and um, just producing so much self-expression in a way that had no filter almost. It was like raw self-choosing or something. And it reminds me of like, I guess what, people might term radical honesty as a kind of movement that is happening because of the internet now, that people who create, they're almost obliged to, to overshare as, as a way of um, getting closer to oneself and getting closer to this raw state of creative production. I don't know if you agree with that or.
0: I mean, I really think Instagram is simply just a tool I mean, I think the difference with Instagram is that it is, it is driven by these algorithms that, um, that the folks in Silicon Valley have kind of decided. And so if you do certain things, you're going to get more viewership or more, more views, more likes. But it's not because people will, um, in, their, in their day-to-day encounter like it, but it is because of how the algorithms are sort of set up um what shows up on someone's feed, what doesn't show up on someone's feed. So it is to me essentially kind of a, a kind of tool, but it isn't real life. But it is like a kind of uh it's it's it has like a physical tool it has like a physicality in the way that like Sadie Coles and Mayfair will have a different kind of type of physicality than Emmeline and Shoreditch. Mm-hmm. There are certain sort of uh algorithms that's going to decide if you go to a shortage and certain algorithms that's going to decide if something pops up on your Instagram feed.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: I think in terms of honesty, um, I think every generation has always needed to figure out how to be honest and use the tools that are in front of them as a way to communicate what's happening to them. I think in terms of artist vulnerability and what artists can share. I mean, I grew up with Tupac as my favorite artist and it's still my favorite artist. And I think about if you listen to any Tupac album or any Tupac, you know, songs, he's he's talking about how much he loves his mom. He talks about how much he hates his mom. You know, it's like he, like I blame my mama for turning my brother into a crack fiend, you know, just he's very, hip hop has always been about, uh, Expressing what people what they're going through, even if it's with a certain type of bravado, you know the the bravado that sort of comes up front, but when you're listening to the words, you're like, "Wow, this kid was thirteen, homeless, like listen you know what I mean when you think about what they're experiencing mm-hmm. uh and what they're thinking about, it's a very different subject, you know what I mean, or like going to jail or getting locked up for for someone assuming that they they have drugs on them or whatever, and I think those vulnerabilities were sort of all in the, all, all in the words uh, of those things being written down. So, I mean, I always grew up with artists who were very vulnerable and allowed me to sort of experience life on a deeper level. Um, you know, I remember when little Kim came out and her talking about what she used to do in the streets and the sex work. And I, I'm cool with a lot of sex workers and, close with a lot of friends who do what they needed to do to get by. And I'm like, and I used to do social work. And when you listen to those people's stories, you know, that shit is not an easy life for a lot of them. Some, some it is, and some it's glamorous and fun. And, but for a lot of them, you know, it's not, it's not a, it's not, it's not an easy life. So when Lil' Kim comes out and speaks on that, on that sort of struggle, you know, it's like, I I understand the, the, the people next to me a little bit better. But I also understand that that's someone who like is experiencing a lot of uh, vulnerability by just expressing those words and like mm. saying this is what I went through. Mm. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. yeah. I
1: guess the for me the difference is uh, with artists like Tupac or Lil Kim or, or whoever uh, are sharing um, vulnerable work or vulnerable expressions. We're we're seeing the final product in a way. Like we have the mm. song as a finished piece of work. Whereas on Instagram, what you shared so openly about your own life experiences in terms of race, violence, sexuality, and you said elsewhere that if uh, your art is in part about learning how to be. And I feel like this process of learning how to be, um, yeah. there's been you stripped back another layer on that. And we're not seeing a final piece of work that shows us your kind of vulnerability per se. We're seeing this this process of learning through a kind of diaristic lens. Like we're seeing notes you've typed in on your iPhone and taken screenshots of and then posted. And they're, they're kind of written uh, with the sense of urgency and haste that makes me feel like I'm closer to your impulsive mind, than I am the mind that might want to package and present a final piece of work. And I just wonder, like, do you see, do you see what I'm, do you see what I'm getting at? Do you feel like there is a difference and that Instagram or social media in that sense becomes its own kind of medium
0: with a more kind of direct link to your subjectivity? Yeah, I definitely think it's a tool. Um, But I think, I think what's interesting, at least how I thought about ins- how I think about Instagram, even though it 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 sometimes I do it in the moment. At this point, at this point in my life, it's it's sort of a muscle. It's like an an, an intuitive muscle of like what may feel right to that I could post in the moment, and because um, I do think there's a couple things that we have to sort of uh, that we're 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 going that we have to go up against um generationally. Um and one is this idea of like being fully formed. You know, when you're you at 21 you you become an adult so you should be able to do whatever there are certain ideas that you should have. And I find that um we don't necessarily give space to people to learn. Uh, and I mean, I've said this a lot of times, but at 70, that's going to be the first time you're 70 years old. That's going to be the first time that your body is not going to be able to do certain things. You're going to be losing a lot of different friends. Maybe you lost friends way earlier, but it's a different type of death that's happening. And at that time, if you're 70 in the age of COVID, it's a vulnerability that you may not have ever experienced. If you're, the fact is, if you're 20, Covid is not the same thing as if you're seventy, right? And so, like, um, and so you may have a you may have a sort of nervousness about being seventy that would have never that would have. There's no preparation for that, and so making mistakes at that period and making mistakes within those times um, is what sort of life is, and I think we sort of have. I think it, for me, became really apparent with sort of cancel culture as it became really became a big, big, became a big thing. And I I understood, like, the impetus of it. But at the same time, growing up, I just, not only myself, but a lot of my friends, we were learning and making bad, horrible decisions and learning from our mistakes. And I just thought that this idea of, like, Cancel culture felt extremely like middle class violence. <laughs> it was because it was just like it was just like kind of set up in 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 this sort of education system where it's like most of the people who went to education who went into the middle class is like all about being protected from making hard decisions. And then you go to college and you have like all of these things where you've never really been confronted with anything. And so you're judging all these people who have like been through crazy shit and then done crazy shit. And I just felt, felt like, and just being someone who was in, in academia all the time and watching that conversation actually coming out of academia, then being kind of spread into how we thought about the world. Um, Cause I remember, just I used to do a lot of social work and I remember like in, in social work, like the conversations around canceling people kind of starting in academia and um and then kind of spreading out and i just thought wow that shit is the most violent shit i've ever seen because it's just like like judging it it, it it's judging people for like decisions that most of those people never have to actually be with their backs against the wall in Uh making those decisions Uh um or in those cultural formations making those decisions and i just thought like as i sort of i kind of saw like an acceptance at least on social media of like people who are sort of following me being college being like in college being in the middle class or upper middle class and i just thought i i, I don't I, I felt like if i don't let them know that i i appreciate the support but i'm never going to come out here and be like the face that be like oh fuck those people back there cancel 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 <laughs> <laughs> like like that ain't me bro mm. <laughs> so so I really kind of had to uh I felt like that was sort of my internal like thing like I can't be I can't come in and um I often think like growing up uh this is sort of like when you started getting an education you came back if you came back to my neighborhood people were like oh you you speak white mm. and I just thought like and this is not on some racial shit but it was like. My aunties and them who loved my my little nephews and cousins and all and my and myself like they were so much about love. They saw us in our hurt and they came and they said, "Come, let me give you a hug." And it was so much about love. And I just thought, wow, my community like was not about cancer culture. It was about love. And it was like, yo, like let me like not judge you. You may have went to jail, gotten raped. You came back out. You did some crazy violent shit, but. I ain't gonna turn your back, come to the church, let's go pray. We're gonna pray up. we're gonna pray for you, we're gonna love you. And that's how I grew up. And I feel like that saved my life, that saved all my all my friends' life, all my all the people in my community's lives. So when I started like going into a space or college and it was like cancel, 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 I was like, that shit just feels like that shit's the most violent thing. Cause I was like, Y'all, y'all are canceling me at 10 years old. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, know what I went through. Yeah, y'all would cancel me, so I just felt like I had to like, like make sure like people who if they are following me on Instagram because it's so easy to press follow that that I push against their perceptions as much as possible so that they go okay, well, we gotta figure that out. We gotta if we like him, then maybe something is maybe we need to click on something. Mm. It's
1: interesting framing your uh, online presence as a kind of influencer in a way that uh, has more to do with shifting one's political ideology in a way. And that there's a sense of like radical inclusivity that it seems like you're trying to clarify for people.
0: Well, radical I mean, just try- acceptance. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, just put that shit like, yo, we don't <laughs> got this, you know what I mean? But I, I, I think, uh, I guess to sort to, cause I feel like there's a
1: question in there, which is like, uh, is that what you see your role as, as an artist today? Like, do you see yourself operating in in the political realm? And uh, is it in some sense your obligation to change people's minds or change their worldviews?
0: I think of myself in the same way that rappers thought it's just you just tell your story mm. you know what i mean you tell your mm. truth and mm. i mean i think there's a direct conversation there's a direct link and i t- said this a lot of times there's a direct link between like ghostface killer all that i got with is you like if you listen to the beginning of the track it starts with you hear the you hear wheels in a bus and then you hear a young dude talking to another young dude and he like yo how old are you young blood and He like 13 and he's like 13 damn, the feds must be running out of niggas to arrest. There's a direct link between that, and then it gets into the song, and Michelle Alexander's, uh, the new Jim Crow and Ava DuVernay, and the conversation that we've had this last year of Black Lives Matter and police and defunding the police. There's a 20-year there's a direct conversation between ghostface, understanding what it means to be a 13-year-old kid going to jail, which is crazy when you're thinking about 13 years old being locked up in a box and Michelle Alexander talking about the effects of of uh, the carceral state in America on black and brown people, and then everything else that sort of follows. And so I just think as an artist, my job isn't to necessarily be right or wrong, but it is to say, this is what I'm going through, this is what I feel, this is what we're feeling, and maybe if you feel that too, then we could kind of get together and say, this is what we're feeling together. You can listen to the songs, you can listen to the, you can watch the paintings, you can watch whatever, but I, I feel like I'm just trying to chase what Tupac did for me, mm. and what Ghostface Kay. and Lauren and all of them did for me. I, I mm. just feel like they gave me a sense of space and life. And uh, I'm really grateful, for, even what Satra did for me, you know what I mean? Like Just the idea of him saying like, yo, you're free. You know what I mean? I feel like, man, I gotta put that out there somehow. I gotta sure. like, say, yo, thanks for, thanks for that. Because I know so many friends who like lose a loved one and that shit fucks them up. I don't think we talk about death in a healthy way. We talk about death as something that's never gonna happen. And I think when people's imagination, when people actually bump into it, it really fucks them up. You know what I mean? And so they don't really know how to overcome that. I know people who have, their DNA has completely fundamentally changed once they lost someone, like lost a parent or something. And that's the most natural thing that's going to happen in life. You know, but we don't, as a state, we don't know how to speak about that. So I just feel like I'm really grateful for Sartre for for putting that out there to me. You know what I mean? So I want to, kind of carry that legacy and be like oh here it is Mm. here was what i got from it
1: Mm. it's just making me think more about how how i came to you as like a white middle class person who grew up in a relatively affluent suburb in vancouver in canada (laughs) like my cultural experience is so removed from yours and yet um i think because of that i've been feeling like maybe the same way you look to Sartre to understand death and your relationship to death and like to find a language for understanding death. Um, I imagine like more and more people are looking to artists like you to find a language for understanding experience outside of their own. Do you feel any kind of pressure in, in like standing for a certain kind of experience, a certain type of black experience, for example? Like do you, um, have you been feeling more um, more kind of responsibility for representing something? Uh, so two
0: things. I think one of the things is culture has no borders, boundaries. Right? Borders are created by like a handful of elite people who said this is what this is what this is gonna feel like. But life has never had any borders. There's no natural borders in life. Like when I was traveling through China, and knew people who was listening to hip hop or when I was in Argentina, I saw people listening to hip hop. There's no there's no borders for uh, how culture and what makes you feel alive. And um, actually, I think death is naturally the thing that it like affirms all your truths, but actually denies everybody else's truth. That to me is like the most violent death that you could experience. And so I see a lot of people who are like, mind has been positioned to think that they are, like their truth is the only truth and there's no acceptance. And you could see, like I've had friends where you could see like the mental breakdown when they understand that somebody else's truth may be, <laughs> may be real. And I've seen it like me as a man or seeing that happen when women have gone, said certain things or like, uh trans folks or anything it's like their mind is like screw the screws are literally falling apart in their mind because like Mm -hmm. how could this not how could this be true (laughs) (laughs) how could you be feeling something that different than what i am telling you that you should be feeling um so so there's that point but i think what was your question again
1: well i guess like yeah it's i mean that the, there's so many truths that, uh, we don't have access to as individuals. And we look, mm. we look elsewhere for, uh, encounters with other truths and we look to art, I think, for encounters yeah. with other truths. I wondered if we could change tack a little and talk about, um, how you first encountered art as a young person mm-hmm. and how you decided that painting was your medium. So you mentioned elsewhere that, um, The Tupac song, Keep Your Head Up, was the piece of art that first captured your attention as like a nine or 10 year old. Like this is when you first understood what art was. And so how did you you come to painting then as a means of like achieving the same ends
0: that a Tupac song could? Of course, I wanted to be a a rapper as a kid, but I don't have that, like I don't have that, um, like rappers know how to use their voice. It becomes an instrument. So like uh Jay Z's voice or Snoop's voice is the as much as an instrument as like the drum. And I, I never really had the mi- muscle to like understand how to use my voice as a as a as a tool like that. So um and I knew that growing up with a lot of kids who were like musicians and um, and rappers and knew like that was definitely now my skill set. So But I was very comfortable, like, since I was a little kid, like, sitting down and um, um, going to museums and watching, like, a painting for 10 hours. I had, like, I had a certain mindset that allowed me to elevate in education because there's it takes a certain type type of... People learn differently, but there's a certain group of people who can sit in a classroom, which is a very unnatural thing, for eight hours and, like, sit there and not like want to run around and like do things with their hands and blah, blah, blah. That's, you know, I think, and so I was one of those kids who was able to sit for eight hours and, and just listen. Mm.
1: Um, and there's, there's anecdotes you've shared in other interviews about going to museums and, and doing exactly that, having, spending eight hours with one painting. You go with uh, your artist friend, Teresa Farrell. Yeah, yeah. And you just sit and look. And I'm so curious. What, first of all, like which paintings were you looking at so closely, and to spend that kind of time with a painting, what what do you look for? What
0: happens? I think what I end up seeing when I look at work is I see like a lot of the decisions that are being played out. So like, um, uh, it becomes almost like a play for me. So I go, oh, they did this, they did this gesture or they, they used their wrist or they used the arm. Oh, they stopped here, but they were going to go there. Toma Apps is one of my favorite artists of, in terms of looking at a year of decisions made on a canvas. But what I do is see people's, uh, is I see like, I see a play of decisions and thinking and looking being played out. And uh, there's a way that paintings allow me to be with my ideas and that hit me and come at me the way movies can sort of come at me. Yeah. It lets me just sort of sit with the decisions and it lets me be with my ideas and then I can kind of pause my idea and work through it. Whereas when you're watching a movie or listening to a song, sometimes you don't have that liberty because you kind of have to, it's timed, So you kind of have to go through the whole process. Whereas with painting, I get to choose my own pace, my own rhythm, and it works really well with my personality, um, mm. more well than any other medium.
1: I'm just looking at Toma Ab's work. I wasn't familiar with her, but there's a description about her paintings and the subject of the paintings being ultimately the process of their own creation. Yeah. And there's a sense of almost like meta fiction to this where um, you're looking at a painting about painting the painting (laughs) or painting itself. And I think similarly with your work, that that sense of um, the work being about its creation is even more amplified where we have post-it notes and printouts of references and like working process annotations around things. And it feels like it's still being made or that we've caught you in the middle of making it. And, you know, traditionally other artists may have then removed all of the notation and all of the supporting evidence for how the painting came to be. But in in your case, that is the work. I wonder why it's important for you to keep all that evidence up there.
0: I mean, I do think that one of my fundamental principles is that we are always growing into our being, and that we are always finding. Every day, we are learning, and you know. So, um, I, I thought art that reflects that in a in a in a, in an inventive way, um, or in a new way, was really interesting for me uh, to try to do as an artist, because I'm always trying to like maybe say something that a generation before me said but now I'm just trying to say it in a new way like uh Yoko Ono's Grapefruit I think is trying to do the same thing that I'm trying to do in my work where she's just like oh imagine riding a cloud and blah 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 and I feel like when I leave that note it's like maybe the viewer can imagine those decisions But, you know, Yoko only just like happened to like write it down in a short writing. Mm. So I don't think I'm necessarily saying anything different, but I think I'm hopefully saying it in a way that's more unique to me. Keeping on this subject of evidence and process,
1: Mm -hmm. um, you co-curated an exhibition last year at Gallery Thedias Ropak in London, called Artists I Steal From. Um, You co-curated this with uh, the curator Julia Payton-Jones. And it was an exhibition about looking at art through your eyes, um, where you and Julia had gone through an extensive collection of artwork and selected essentially your influences. And then um, you included one piece of your own in the show, but primarily it's uh, the work of other people, including... We have Andy Warhol, Izzy Wood, Louise Bourgeois, the list goes on and on and on. But what was interesting to me about that is it's kind of this this impulse to show the back end or the process. Um, It's always interesting to see an artist's influences exposed like this. And I feel like other artists must have done this in the past. It's not uncommon for artists to take on the role of the curator and try and piece together forensically the puzzle of how their work came to be and what what other thinkers and artists contributed, you know, were the foundations for their way of seeing the world. Yeah. What What was different here, though, was the way in which this process was framed. Because it's artists I steal from, and when we're talking about theft um, in relation to like cultural access. And then when we also consider the fact that like you're a black man in, in this gallery system, which I guess um is primarily a white world still, I wondered if you could talk more about like the decision to frame this process of learning uh as one of theft and like if it is a tongue-in-cheek analysis of the situation. Because what well, I watched a conversation or a kind of panel discussion that happened at that gallery when the show was open. And the conversation really never went there. It like briefly touched on race, but more about like cultural appropriation. And there was a discussion about Picasso and his use of African masks. And um, then at the very end, you almost did go into a different territory when you talked about, you know, being with a friend of yours who was smoking pot and you were kind of trying to you were kind of asking him to stop because you didn't want anyone to get in trouble. And he's like, chill out, man. Like, don't get me in trouble. As if you were always the culprit anyways because of your identity in certain environments. And I just want to, I mean, it's such, a, it's such an interesting scenario, this artist I stole from exhibition because this is like a very highbrow environment. Like you're up on a plinth in a white cube gallery. There are probably a lot of powerful art market individuals in the audience. You have Julia Peyton Jones to one side, who for 25 years led the Serpentine Gallery, and I understand is a real mentor of yours. And she's kind of ushering you into this other realm of art. You were visibly nervous and kind of uncomfortable at the beginning. (laughs) There are so many questions here, but I I guess I wanna have the conversation I wish you guys had had at that panel discussion about who has the right to culture, uh, who belongs to the canon, who has the right to build a canon for themselves. And I want to understand to what extent you feel like you really belong in that world or belong to the art world as a kind of new acquisition to this system. I mean, take your pick of any of those questions (laughs) circling around.
0: I'll try to answer a few of them uh with like a kind of principle or philosophy mm-hmm. that i work on work through um first i think firstly, cultural ideas have always been formed by the exchange of of many different communities and cultures um, um, and when you think about a lot of art centers in the world, they have always been um Spaces of trade. So when you think about like Venice, for example, that's where like things like from China to the Middle East to wherever was all being exchanged. Um, London's a great art center because it's also a trade center in the world. New York is a trade center. Um, I think those places, what you end up having is like many cultures, many different people kind of exchanging ideas and creating new things um hip-hop is a is an example of like jamaicans and puerto ricans and um uh some jewish kids from the south bronx and a bunch of other people kind of coming together to make to make this kind of art form and so i think culture always sort of has uh many different groups that are kind of forming and changing ideas um what ends up happening in what sort of gets called uh uh white patriarchal supremacy is that all the credit gets gets sort of um given to one specific usually white man erasing like the women's contribution or the or like the black person or the Indian person or the Chinese person's contribution into that conversation, and so you have like what today you see in the history books of like a series of white men after white men after white men after white men, after white men being like kind of credited for everything and that that foundationally has never been true and, um, because it's always been a, a kind of cultural exchange, so I feel very comfortable in a lot of spaces because I understand the rea- I understand the tr- truth is that many cultures has always contributed uh, to, in terms of cultural advancements. One of my privileges is that I grew up in hip hop. I grew up in a culture that you could sort of, I, I've went everywhere. I've went a lot of places in the world. People know who Biggie is. People know who Pac is. Um, and I grew up, those were my neighbors. Like what I was experiencing is what the world kind of knows. So I like walk into many spaces, like um, understanding that that was my lived truth. And I don't necessarily know what kind of music people were listening to in Shanghai in 1996, but I know if I go to Shanghai, there's millions of people who know what I was listening to. So it's a bit of a, so I have a bit of a confidence privilege in that like, that culture kind of allows me to walk freely with my head up um higher i just don't necessarily feel um when i'm in white spaces uh any sort of challenge because i always knew like i mean internally i know may i mean somebody may not know that <laughs> like somebody may not know like that Matisse went to Harlem three times to listen to jazz, to invite them in, into, their, into, the, into his studio to like paint. Like he's thinking about like um, Chinese calligraphy, listening to jazz music, musician. And he's like, oh, this feels the same way. I, don't wanna, I wanna make a painting that feels like this. Um, but that was Matisse's like invention. He's like going to Harlem. He's listening to the jazz greats of his time. He gets these Japanese ink paintings and these Chinese calligraphy, and he and he figured out that the way the sort of the way that the flow of Chinese calligraphy uh, matches a sort of way of being that jazz is creating for him. And so that's how he creates. And he made a whole series called Jazz. That's how he created his cutouts. Um, and I know that's been more the case more often than not, and so I don't necessarily feel like any sort of, um, uh, you know, somebody may only think of Matisse as like, oh, he's this great French genius, but when you look at his life, and he's like, oh, you mean he's going to Harlem a bunch of times to listen, you know, and he's like, so, um, you know, I don't let, I try not to let someone's ignorance dictate how I should feel about myself. Um, In terms of the other question about like who get to use what culture, I think there's a couple different, I think that to the point of like, um, I think artists have free reign to do whatever and go wherever. I think just an artistic point, if you're just, if you're like making a bad version of somebody's work, then that's not very interesting. And if you want to claim it, that's not very interesting. Um, and I see that with a lot of students. And I did, you know, who would, like, make a bad version of, like, a Peter Doig painting and then feel like they've invented a language that, you know, just is like. And to me, that's, like, that's the worst form of being an artist. Is just you're taking somebody's ideas and style and now you want to own it. Hmm. Um, In terms of cultural production, I do think, obviously, the erasure that has happened to women, to people of color, um, we have to work against that and we have to sort of, uh, because I think it does two types of injustice. It creates a space where uh, people feel lesser than because they don't feel like they, as a gender or whatever, has contributed to the conversation when that is far from the truth. And then it also creates a space where white men feel more entitled to invention, even though they haven't been more inventive than any other race. And so it creates two sorts of violence within people, one feeling lesser than, and then one maybe sometimes white men, I know, like maybe feeling um, inadequate because they're not as great as, as like, this other white man, you know? And they think, wow, all white men should be great. And, um, and, and so that anxiety ends up playing out in, in their head, but because we've created these false narratives, we see all of these sort of uh, internalized violence. And I do think it's our generation's thing to maybe start correcting that truth. What did they give you, blood? Three months, man. What you doing in here anyway? You ought to be home with your mama. How old are you, boy? Thirteen. Thirteen. Damn. The bastards must be running out oh, of niggas yeah. to arrest. This goes out to all the families that went through the struggle. All yeah, like that is you. with no heart, it was all and from the heart. So Everything was real. 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 Yeah. Dwelling in the past, flashbacks when I was young. Whoever thought I'd have a baby girl and three sons? But going through this difficult stage, I find it hard to believe. While my old earth had so many seas, but she's a own woman.
1: I just kept feeling like in looking at the work of this exhibition, Artists I Still From, and also listening to the conversation around it, I felt like there was still this other conversation, this kind of subtext about um having a black artist from New York in this space with this work, asserting his position and framing it as theft. Um, There's something there that I I wanted to to try and access somehow like this, this kind of undertone to this whole dynamic where like the moderator on the one hand is like this high powered art editor and wants to talk about um Kierkegaard and repetition and then you're there and you want to talk about Erica Badu it just feels like we're in this really interesting moment culturally where these spaces and um, the conversations we'd assume would be had in them are starting to adjust but it's like the it's there's like a kind of growing pain or something and it's not for me like I wasn't happy with it. I wasn't satisfied with the conversation yet. <laughs> mm. I think it's like, it's so interesting, Julia Peyton Jones, like <sighs> she has a project as well, I imagine, and like, I'm I'm interested in like your relationship with her and her motivations because she's really, she's really celebrating you and she's, she's really boosting you. I think she wants you to succeed in a certain realm of the art world. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, like, this is a, maybe a different conversation that we don't need to have necessarily, but there are these other facets of that, that situation and that encounter or your encounter with these artworks in this specific gallery that I, I feel like they're, yes, difficult to talk about, but also more interesting.
0: <laughs> mm. Well, I mean, so Tadeus to, to as a dealer, uh, he got his start because. He met Joseph Boyce, who introduced him to Andy Warhol, um, who was then like partying in Studio 54 with Basquiat and Bianca Jagger um, and Blondie and Basquiat's, of course, David Madonna um, So I think for, 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 for that's how he imagined, uh, culture, right. Is in that group of, in that community. And if you are partying in the late seventies, early eighties, that's like gay culture. That's like disco culture. That's, it's a mix of a lot of people and he's Austrian. Right. And, uh, um, Warhol is Polish American, and Basquiat is, you know, um, is Haitian Puerto Rican from Brooklyn, and Madonna is from, and Blondie and um, Bianca Jagger is married to Mick Jagger, but she's from Central America. So I think for Ropac, uh, that's kind of his position, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think when you're from when you form your cultural DNA in that moment, your understanding of culture, that's kind of how you're going to carry yourself. Mm -hmm. And so I think it, when I look at that room, it makes sense, all of it, you Mm -hmm. know, it doesn't, uh, but he's also going back to Austria and listening to opera. So Mm -hmm. I think um, that sort of form that, that, that exhibition, who was formed under ROPAC, and because Julia works for Tadeus, uh, um, I think when Tadeus and I spoke, and even when we do speak, we speak about that kind of m- moment in his imagination, because that that moment excites me all the time. You know that to me is what art is.
1: I guess maybe this is a way this is a way for us to get outside of the gallery then because it's drawing awareness to the culture around the gallery that feeds the gallery. And yeah. you're you're working in <clears throat> other venues. You're doing art in other venues that exist outside of the white cube gallery. Most recently having designed a float for um
2: Notting Hill Carnival
1: Float. Yeah, so you designed a float for Notting Hill Carnival, but you also, as you say, host parties, and there's music, and your paintings are somehow the backdrop for these events. And you work with different galleries, and some, they cater more to this idea of art as existing as lived experience outside of the gallery. And then also you're, you're raising money for scholarships with your artwork, which in itself is a kind of, maybe a kind of performance piece in and of itself. And so can, can you talk a little more about the way that art for you starts to extend beyond the white walls of the gallery and how you see your art practice as being uh,
0: embedded in lived experience or real life? Well, I think if it's anything that like most of the galleries that I work with uh, from Blum and Poe to Sadie uh, to today's, um, I mean, these guys were being formed in, in, in cultural moments, you know, like, um, like today, as I, like I mentioned, was being formed in the Studio 54 crowd and the crowd that came after Studio 54 and those are, Bianca Jagger, still his best friend, you know, like they're not, um, I think, yeah, they end up saying we're going to open up a shop or whatever or like, you know, rap may come in a CD, but those are lived experiences of those musicians. It's not, yeah, it's a product at the end of the day, but it also, also is like steps. I mean, the idea that it just becomes sort of like a, um, a marker of like, I mean, the idea that it's like if it was just a CD that it's now just a product, you know, but they live like in some sort of like cozy house somewhere. <laughs> it's not really... I think it's sort of the same equivalent. Now there are artists who do that for sure, who like the art for art's sake and they kind of, and some of them make some of my favorite art, but um, when we're talking about a lot of the best artists in life, that's not how they made art, you know, and that's, they always made it in a community, in a group of friends, you know, it's like I said, it's like Matisse going to Harlem and making his jazz series. <laughs> so it's always happening. It, uh, or Sadie out here, like, you know, I live in shortage, but when Sadie and Sarah Lucas, Sarah Lucas who told Sadie, like, you need to start a gallery, <laughs> you know, but when Sarah Lucas, Damien Hurst, Tracy Emmons, uh, Alexander McQueen, they were doing parties and shit it wasn't shortage. It was like the space that they just needed to like fucking make things happen. Mm. And, and they did it. And then it be, you know, and then an industry ended up forming around it. But I think we often sort of erase that history because the, the, um, um, you know, Paris, which today we think of like as paris but back in the day it was like where the cheap it was the cheap place that artists could kind of go and afford a studio and fucking do things together so i don't um i think the history ends up getting erased once we sort of see it in a white wall Mm. but it's still still very present culturally so maybe we could talk more about your website now and how
1: um you as an artist uh, but also like a protagonist in a culture, in a scene, are kind of generating this, um, these encounters and like cultivating this uh, moment culturally outside of the gallery? Like, what, what is
0: Garvey.net? Um, I think one of the things that I realized with this year... With lockdown, there's two things. There was that we've been in a digital revolution for quite some time. And I think any artist, especially artists of my generation, if we don't figure out a way to sort of lean into the digital revolution, then we're, we're, we're clearly missing the biggest voice, the biggest moment of our generation. And so I needed to figure out at the beginning of the year how to lean into that. At the same time, I also feel like... Um, as an artist uh, extremely limited by like the platforms that are out there for my art. So um, if I want to post something, if Instagram decides that algorithm, the algorithm may decide that other people may not want to see that uh, it may only show up on like 50 people's feed because Instagram has said only these 50 people may like it. And so the idea of like, constantly having my ideas being dictated by some incredible like you know I choose my galleries out here I choose my galleries in America I'm like I choose it because I'm like oh this is a physical space that I know it's going to do this certain thing that or or be it may be inviting to this group of people it may not be inviting to this group of people but I thought on digital in the digital space to not have any power over that I needed to figure out how to get take that power and create that power. So um, um, so the Garvey art is just one of the first steps towards uh, leaning into the digital and figuring out what is a community that can be built around a specific group of I- specific ideas that I have so that it's not about it showing up on your feed, but you wanting to go to that that website constantly because there's maybe interesting music coming out of it. There's interesting ideas coming out of it. Um, and so it's sort of building it up over time that it is a, it is a sort of digital physical place that people can go. And I, I, that I want to go to all the time. Um, and that other people may want to go to all the time, but we're sort of engaging in a group of, in a, in a, in, in, in like, um, in a specific idea, which is basically like, how can black people, I mean, the project with Garvey is, uh, how can black people, uh, or Caribbean folks mostly, but black, the black Caribbean diaspora, brown, black and brown Caribbean diaspora, how can we uh, begin to Take ownership of our cultural production, so that we're we're the ones ultimately who are profiting off of it. I think one of the things that sort of happens with with art um, is that it's sort of fashioned in this one percent model where like a group like the CEOs at the top can get all the money, and everybody else sort of who has done the 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 cultural labor get nothing. And I thought, um, um, as someone who sort of gets a lot from Caribbean culture, gets a lot from the diaspora that I needed to, um, that I needed to figure out a system to like pay a kind of cultural tax back to the pack, back to the, uh, back to the community that, uh, that I am sort of in in uh, taking ideas from or listen listening to ideas within, and sort of side is sort sort of hopefully one of the attempts to sort of a pay my cultural taxes to say thank you for like letting me b- borrow your ideas or put it in a painting, um, and because these ideas are formed within larger cultural conversations, so. Um, that's part of it too it's like yeah I guess just to end maybe on this point or this
1: theme um, well first of all can you just remind uh, me and listeners
0: what the actual URL for the website is it's uh, garveyart.net but I think we're trying to build it up over time it's not something that I think will have its ethos or ideas anytime soon but I think it's sort of putting in some of the right cultural incentives that a make like folks from the Caribbean want to visit it. Um, and I don't, and as somebody who like lives now or less more, more or less in, in a lot of white spaces, I've come to understand that I, uh, definitely my, 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 like the way I carry myself or whatever, like speaks to a certain type of, uh, Shortage crowd, or like a Mayfair crowd, or whatever it isn't necessarily like uh, the Jamaican Brixton crowd, you know what I mean. So, mm-hmm. so understanding that um, um, I may not have all the right codes to make us make a space feel welcome, welcoming. That we need more of the community to be the input in terms of how the site get built out, um, and so it's kind of actually really like on the low quieter we're talking to a lot of people from the carnival community and musicians and stuff like that and like seeing you know and getting them to like do things for the site to eventually make it uh speak to the audience that I think hopefully I'm trying to reach with the, the that 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 now we have another side which is like a that's being developed now which is like kind of a a digital bookstore because i started publishing books mm. um but i think many of the codes of that is sort of maybe i'm a bit more organic too because i'll i'll go to a bookstore and like i'll you know like flip through and um um so my intuitions are more aligned to that but i think in terms of the the garvey side it's uh leaning more in the caribbean community to sort of Develop that as a platform,
1: yeah. and I guess just to end, um, I wondered if you could talk briefly about who Garvey actually was, um, and how you first encountered his ideas, and whether or not your relationship to his his work has changed as you started to engage with uh, these ideas more in your own artwork.
0: Um, I think, you know, Garvey, someone growing up in the Caribbean, had uh, always had a presence. I mean, he's a foundation of Rasta culture. And a a lot of my uncles were Rastas and, you know, Bob Marley's a Rasta. And um, he's sort of like a saint, but um, in Rasta culture, but partly because he sort of came out right after, uh, I mean, his most famous quote is a tree without its roots is bound to fall. And um, he kind of came up right after slavery um, had ended. And it was a moment where black people, the black diaspora who had been so defined by uh, hundreds of years of slavery, needed to sort of find a different, find an idea of themselves that was not rooted in slavery, that, that it was a history that sort of go really, that goes really far back to Africa. And so he's kind of uh, credited as the father of Pan-Africanism. Um, and, and so I thought it just felt quite uh, natural for me to want to start a project under him. There's a lot of different projects that I have. There's even a project on the Sartre that I'm doing in Paris and um, and Simone de Beauvoir. But he's one of those projects that uh, I was able to gain a certain idea of myself and the world through. So it's sort of trying to take uh, some of his principles and then trying to... Uh, um, put it out there as much as possible in the, in the, in the live practice. Um, But yeah. He seems like a,
1: he seems like a really complex historical character because like, as you say, he's in one sense, like a saint of uh, a Rastafarian culture, but then on the other hand, And I have to admit, I was just reading this on Wikipedia, so I don't. It has to be caveated that uh, the provenance of the information maybe is still not totally clear, and I'll I'll defer to you to correct me. But um, he also um, he was committed to the back to Africa movement, arguing that many African Americans should migrate there. He had black separatist views, um, and apparently collaborated with white racists like the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, to advance their shared interest in racial separatism, and so like like any historical character, Garvey is complex and fallible, and I just wonder to what extent you you engage with like his fallibility or like what your relationship is to him as this multi dimensional and like potentially
0: flawed historical character as well. Um... I guess there's two, there's two levels to that question. I think there's the universal level of like the ideas that are put forward by past figures. uh, How much, how much value can they have in relationship to certain ideas that they believe? So I think in America, like the question of like Thomas Jefferson and like, gets constantly raised because he believed in. And he wrote eloquently about like uh, freedom for all human beings, but yet he was a slave owner, right? Mm-hmm. So how much do you throw away the baby with the bathwater? water? Do you not believe that in a more perfect union and freedom for all human beings, but because mm-hmm. he owns slaves, do you then say, fuck all of that shit? Right.
1: <laughs> this goes back to your point about the the violence of cancel culture,
0: yeah. And but so do we guess, go like, yeah. Mm,
1: yeah. But like, how do you reconcile the 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 like many different sides of Garvey in your work?
0: Um, I think I think on a personal level, uh, I wouldn't know how to feel if I was born right outside of slavery and I saw like the violence of slavery and. Um, and I think how people reacted to that moment. Um, I don't want to judge anybody for like seeing like seeing what white people are doing to black people in a on a on a real level every day, and then be like, "But you should have felt differently." <laughs> 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 like <laughs> you mean you just saw you saw the end of slavery so what people were doing you know but when, when he was being when he was born people had like just ended slavery so it's like for him to see the consequences of that and see the scars and the thing and then go whoa maybe white people and black people can't get along you know just like i, I think uh, uh i think to me that's like a That's like the biggest sense of uh, victim blaming that one can have, because it's like, it's not addressing what slavery did, but it's addressing the person who witnessed it, how they feel about what slavery did, which is like, okay. (laughs) Um, Which is a very different conversation to me in, in terms of like, which is also very different from Thomas Jefferson, but it is also the same because I think um, in one way, America was formed as a breakaway from the feudal system and the kings. So in that way, they were, they were sort of uh, fighting against power. On the other end, you know, he was sort of, um, he was a slave owner and was kind of, whereas I think Garvey was just sort of trying to figure out like, how do these people who had, who had just come out of slavery, how do we get ahead? Like Jefferson is both an oppressor and oppressed, right? Garvey is someone who is more or less oppressed thinking about how to get ahead. And I think that's, to me, a different kind of conversation. Uh, But it is like a conversation about like victim blaming, because I really wouldn't, I mean, we all watched George Floyd die, get murdered and so many people went up in arms, I could only, I mean, just imagine the atrocities of slavery and witnessing that on your parents, your aunties, your everybody, and then not feeling some sort of way, you Mm -hmm. know, Um, and not thinking that black and white people should be together. (laughs) I just think it's (laughs) probably a natural uh, consequence of that. I know a lot of women who had been raped and just uh, have extremely... Strong, passionate feelings about men, and I think to then go to them and be like, uh, "Your feelings are wrong." <laughs> it's, it's it's a bit of like, a, it's a, as opposed to like going to them and saying, "Man, I'm really sorry, what happened to you?" And, and although I don't represent, although uh, I know in many ways I represent some of the same ideas as a man. Um, I definitely understand where you're coming from, and I, as a as a social worker, when I was doing social work, that's kind of how you had to approach it. I a lot of lot of uh, the folks I worked with had been violently raped and like had certain ideas, and I think you know you you came to them seeing seeing how they saw you through their eyes and through their experience, as opposed to like. Like, you should, like, oh, men are good. Like, shut up. <laughs> you know, like, like no. I, I just don't, I don't know what it means to be pinned down and raped. I don't, I don't. And I don't know what attitude I would have towards men if that happened to me, <laughs> you know, so. Um, but yeah, I do think that there's a bit of victim blaming in terms of like how he or many black people felt at that time coming out of slavery and still feel today, you know. Um, because I'd rather address like the system as opposed to like how individuals feel after a violence has happened to them.
1: Mm. Alvaro, thank you so much. <laughs> You've been so generous. And um, I think for me, you're offering up this way of engaging with culture and with history that is fundamentally rooted in compassion. And I'm so moved by
0: that. So thank you. No, thank you. And you've also encouraged me that, you know, one of the things I've been also thinking about is like, we're very privileged to be in a space where we can kind of reach out to people and say, hey, I want to have a conversation with you. Um, I done that but very 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 sparsely and you've encouraged me to kind of continue to be like more brave in that like reaching out to artists and being like yeah or other people other creatives and say hey like can we just have a conversation you know so i'm i'm gonna remember this uh and yeah thank you so much You've been listening to scaffold
1: i'm matthew blunderfield and i produce the show the theme music is composed and performed by andrew rayworth of the band stanley park with additional music this week by ghostface killer subscribe to scaffold on itunes or wherever you get your podcasts follow the show on twitter and instagram at scaffold underscore podcast thanks to alvaro barrington to the architecture foundation for supporting the show and special thanks as well to the folks on patreon If you like the show and want to become a supporter, visit patreon.com forward slash scaffold to find out more. Thanks as always to Scandalin, and thanks to you for listening. I'll see you again in two weeks.